guest host this week is Paul Kimball, and maybe we should bring our listeners up to date on all the happenings in the PowerCast forums. You see, a lot of you folks don't participate in those forums. I'd say maybe a fraction of our listeners actually ever join up forum.thepowercast.com. Maybe you haven't checked into online forums and maybe you don't care. But a lot of the action is there. We've got, I don't know, 80, 90,000 messages right now. So it gets pretty crazy. Some of it not so crazy. Now, we had a very active thread very recently about UFO abductions, but a lot of that was in connection with one woman who decided she had been wronged by Dr. David Jacobs and set up a website and told everybody who'd listen about it. And then, maybe you saw this message, Paul. I said, okay, you know what? You've had your 15 minutes of fame. Since you've made such a big deal of this, tell us who you really are. Never heard from them again. Well, Gene, you and I, as I think you know, had a different, a somewhat different point of view on the Emma Woods story, or as David Jacobs called her, wasn't it Alice? Was that the name he used for her? I can't remember. Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> you say that she claimed that she was taken advantage of or abused by Dr. Jacobs. Um, my point of view is I have absolutely no doubt that she was taken advantage of and abused by Dr. Jacobs. Now, the extent of that who you want to assign blame to on sort of a relative scale. If you were in a court of law, you'd say they're both contributorily negligent. You know, so that's it's not actually all- kind of where I stand. And I'm not enamored with what Dr. Jacobs doing, especially forgetting the value of hypnosis, doing it by telephone. Right. Well, if you assume that the value of hypnosis is almost nil, but let's say there might be some value there. You, It's like cloning. You can take that original value, whatever it is, and then you can degrade it even further by doing it over the phone. I think everything about the Emma Woods case, you can leave aside the question, and I know some people have questioned her own mental state, and I think she probably does have some mental issues. She was seeing a therapist, apparently, before she ever went to Jacobs. Um, that doesn't mean, as one poster on the Paracast forums infamously said, that she was that something crazy. Um, it just means that maybe, like m- many of us, she is not 100% normal, she's 99% normal or 88% or whatever. But to go to, she wound up with Dr. Jacobs, and I feel sorry for her because anybody long before this Emma Woods story broke, there were an awful lot of people within UFO research quietly in most cases, saying that they thought there were serious problems with Dr. Jacobs' methodology and Bud Hopkins and a lot of these other guys who use hypnosis. There were a few people who were saying it publicly. Kevin Randall was certainly one. Um, I was one. Jacques Vallée has written about hypnosis and abductions. Uh, I did a blog post at at my blog a few years ago where I talked about what Dr. Valet said, none of it terribly complimentary. So it's not as if this is a new topic. The question of hypnosis and how these abduction researchers have been dealing with the subject. The Emma Woods case, to me, should be the nail, no matter what you think about the relative merits of, of her side of it or his side, if you listen to all the evidence objectively, if you look at what's been posted by both sides, 
I think it should be the nail in whatever career, quote, quote, Dr. Jacobs had in terms of dealing with the abduction phenomenon. I don't think Dr. Jacobs should be allowed anywhere near anybody who claims to have had an abduction experience. Whatever that phenomenon represents, I think it's time for Dr. Jacobs to quietly ride into the sunset. And, you know, for his own sake, the best thing for him might be to sort of say, you know what, maybe I did some good work in the past in terms of researching the history of the UFO phenomenon, other things. Hopefully folks will remember me for that. And now I'm just going to fade away, and, and I don't want to be part of this anymore. See, my and, problem and would- here is not so much that he did things that, possibly aren't kosher and so you know, i have very very deep concerns i wouldn't want somebody to hypnotize me and if they did i'd want somebody who was at least trained a trained mental therapist not a history teacher or something you know so that's taking it far i mean as a kid i would hypnotize my friends but we're having fun we weren't doing it for therapy i also freely admit that i'm probably quite crazy on the other hand i think emma woods was using this grabbing onto it and maybe trying to basically create a community around herself a little bit more than she should have. She should also have decided if she is reasonably well at one point to simply hang up the phone, say, this is enough. She didn't have to keep calling him. She didn't have to participate in these sessions anymore. If he's being as abusive as she says he is, hang up the phone, give it up. On the long haul, I would hope that we'll find a way to investigate these things without hypnosis. On the other hand, we have a problem. What about so-called missing time? How do you recover memories that may not be there? Well, I would go back to, to go back to the Emma Woods thing again, and I think this will probably be the final time that I, I say anything about it. I absolutely understand where she's coming from. If what happened is, is what she said happened, even remotely as close to what happened, the, it is a perfectly understandable human response to want to go after the person that did this to you. I understand it. I am not sure I would carry it quite as far as it seems she has, but I've been wronged before, and I'm not talking by a guy who hypnotized me and convinced me I had multiple personality disorder or whatever, you know, in business or anything else. And I give as good as I get. You know, you're not just going to walk over me and expect me to fade away. So I don't think she's been trying to create a community. I think she was taken advantage of by a couple of podcast hosts on another podcast that shall not be named, but is going out of business soon. And I think they were primarily responsible for publicly spreading this story over the last few months um, to their own benefit. And I think she was uh, taken advantage of a bit by them. On the flip side, I think it was good that they brought that story out because I don't think she was getting a lot of traction within the UFO research community. I think it, it was a story that was known before then. And I think people were largely ignoring it because Dr. Jacobs has a lot of friends. Dr. Jacobs has an awful lot of people that he's worked with over the years, 10, 20 years, so does Bud Hopkins, who would be loathe to criticize them even when presented with evidence that is pretty damning as far as I'm concerned. And it's, you want Kevin Randall talks about a conspiracy of silence. I'll tell you what the conspiracy, I don't know what the government's conspiracy of silence is, but I can guarantee you there is a conspiracy of silence within the UFO research community. And that conspiracy of silence is when you are dealing with a very popular researcher, a well-known researcher, one who's been around for a while, if you start to see chinks in their armor, if you start to see them doing things that, well, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't quite kosher, you keep quiet. 
because in many cases, you don't want to disrupt relationships that might lead you or keep you on the conference lecture circuit. But in other cases, it's partly a natural response, too. You can see it sort of from, I don't, you know, if you objectively looking at it, Bud Hopkins came out and defended Dr. Jacobs. He did it on the Paracast. He's done it elsewhere. Um, and he did it vehemently in, in some respects by attacking the character of Emma Woods. That, it, to me... He's aiding and abetting the bad behavior of Dr. Jacobs. On the other hand, I also understand the human impulse behind that, to defend somebody who's been a lifelong friend of yours, to try and believe the best about them. But at some point, you have to step back and say, you know what? If this guy has been doing the kinds of things that it looks like he's been doing, maybe I need to reassess who my friends are. And just because they seem to share my views within the UFO community, maybe there's a greater good here. Maybe there's a, a moral imperative that goes beyond just being friends or both of us making the same point. And the UFO research community falls down consistently on this point time after time after time. And this is just another case of it. Well, at least I have no lectures to give and no lecture circuit to join. Nobody's me asking me to join the lecture circuit, so I don't care. Me so, neither, because I say stuff like what I just said, so I don't get invites. But Well, that's it. You just mess it up. And by allowing you to say that, well, they're not going to invite me either. And frankly, I don't care. I'd rather be honest and poor, which, of course, is what I am. Okay, now the second part of the question, of course, is, all right, so how do we recover was the methodology to recover memories where somebody says, you know what, I was driving along the highway, I saw a UFO, suddenly it's four hours later. What's the process? Take them to a qualified, trained practitioner, psychology, psychiatry, medical people, and let them deal with it. It's time for the UFO research community, and I use those that term in quotation marks in most cases, to get out of it. You know, they can wander off and you will continue to get people who will continue to push the alien abduction meme, that story, that narrative. Good. You can't stop them. However, if you really want to look at what's happening with these people, there are trained professionals that should be looking into it. You're not qualified to opine on that. I'm not qualified. I'm suspecting, although without knowing for sure, that nobody on the Paracast forums is really, truly qualified, unless, you know, they have a psychology degree or something. So I think it's time that, you know, that end of it, that entire thing, be, we transferred over to them. And if there are physical aspects of the abduction phenomenon, there are ways to research the abduction phenomenon. Don't, if anyone's listening to me, don't think for a minute that I'm saying we shouldn't look into this as UFO, whatever, paranormal researchers. It just shouldn't involve dealing with recovered memories, psychological issues, and all that sort of stuff. We're not trained for it. And even if you were trained for it, you might get somebody within the UFO field who was biased. It should be an objective person who's looking at this. But there are things that you can do. You can look for physical evidence. You can go and invest. If somebody calls and says, look, I was in my house, I was taken out of my bed, uh, I'm missing time, or I was driving my car, whatever, you can do conduct a physical investigation of that site to look for any evidence. If there's no evidence, well, that's interesting. You can set up cameras. I'm shocked that this is not done more often. When we were ghost hunting, filming ghost cases, we had a DVR camera system. So you would have four, if you watch any episode, you'll see it. In fact, we caught some very compelling footage that we still, we've shown a number of experts and they just shrug and go, that's not a camera artifact. We can't explain what it is. Set those cameras up. If I'm in, if I've been having these abduction experiences coming out of my bed, for instance, you know, missing time at night, whatever, set the four cameras up in the room and see what happens. And, and don't expect to get results in a day or two. You know, that's the other thing ufology, UFO research seems to be lacking is patience these days. 
stick it for the long haul. Run the, run the test over six months or 12 months or however long it takes and see if anything happens. If nothing happens, then I think you're probably looking at something where the problem or the issue lies with the person who's reporting it. And it's an internal thing, not an external thing. But who knows, if you run these kinds of investigations, real investigations, not people with pocket watches trying to hypnotize somebody or somebody calling somebody in New Zealand going, I'm hypnotizing you now to recover memories. By the way, you have multiple personality disorder. Toss that stuff and go back and do real investigation. CSI, crime scene type investigations. And also, not just in the past, but what's coming in the future. Set up cameras, um, have people monitor it. Those are things that can be done relatively inexpensively. And it sure as hell beats sitting down and hypnotizing people to try and recover memories. A process that even in the hands of the most trained, most qualified professional is um, controversial, let's say, at best. I was going to say debatable, but I go along with your similar characterization of what that is. I will say this, ladies and gentlemen, I think if you had the cameras there, you wouldn't see anything. It doesn't mean the experiences are not real, but I think a lot of them are internal. We'll see what happens. We have a guest who is returning for his second appearance on the PowerCast. He's somebody who was an insider. Tell us about Nick Pope. Ah, uh, my good friend Nick Pope. The man does like his beer, and so do I. So every time Nick and I get together, uh, we always have a lot of fun. He was the um, head of the Ministry of Defense's UFO desk. Uh, again, a controversial claim. There are critics of his within the United Kingdom who say that he was basically just a paper-pushing clerk. Nick's story has always been, and this has been backed up by, I think, most people who know what was really going on, that while he did a fair bit of paper-pushing, he was also going out and investigating cases in the field from, I believe, 1991 to 1993. I think I have those years right. After which, before and after, he was involved in other work at the Ministry of Defense, eventually retiring, I think, about a year and a half or two years ago. And now he's in the private sector as a researcher, writer, media personality, um, bon vivant. So he's the thing about Nick is he's people have often said he's very hard to pin down People, I've been there at parties, and people will often ask him questions about things that Nick cannot tell you the answers to, because he's still bound by the Official Secrets Act, and I don't understand why people don't get that. But there, you know, once you leave the Ministry of Defense, you can't just go, "Well, okay, here's the truth: we really did kill Princess Diana, or whatever." I mean, you know, if that sort of stuff. I actually saw somebody ask, or was there when somebody asked him that question once? Did the, you know, did MI6 really off Princess Di? <laughs> Nick just took a drink, smiled, and said, "Well, even if they did, I couldn't." tell you so you know what we'll be talking to him tonight with that caveat we'll try and get as much information out of nick pope as anybody has ever gotten out of but we won't ask him about princess die nick pope no. coming up next on the paracast i have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. 
We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Hello, Nick Pope calling from, or we're calling you actually. I assume you're in London in the mother country, as we Canadians say. I am indeed. I'm in London, England. Ah, very good. Jolly good. Just sorry, jolly good. As jolly as good. So far, over there. Yes, quite so. Before we came on, folks, in case you're uh, looking for the sports scores, Nick's team Arsenal finished third this year in the Premier League, and it looks like David Cameron is going to be the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. There, that's all we'll say. There, a little bit of British um, politics and sports before we get into UFOs. Is that, did I get that right, Nick? They finished third. You did. You did. <laughs> Although the political situation is quite literally changing by the minute, if not second. So, um, and what makes it worse, Nick, finished. is the fact that this will be on our May 23rd show. So everything you just heard oh, may be well, inoperative. Well, by the time that broadcasts, then it will be what? You didn't know about the minority green government that swept to power in a revolution? You guys are so out of date. The coalition between uh, Jerry Adams and Alex Sapp, yeah. <laughs> with what is it, played Cymru or whatever, the Welsh nationalists? Yes, I can never was... pronounce that. Okay, so Paul McCartney is now, Sir Paul McCartney is now Prime Minister, right? Well, maybe that's an idea. That's about the one thing we haven't tried over here. The weirdest thing that I saw, I watched the British election coverage um, from start to finish. Lovely on the internet, too. Wonderful technological advancement on the BBC. And they had a guy who was at a, on a boat on the Thames interviewing various people on the boat. I can't remember his name. But one of the people he interviewed was Bill Wyman, the bass player for the Rolling Stones. I think it was, it was either him or Ronnie Wooden. I'm pretty sure it was Bill well, Wyman. Well-known political commentator. Yes, quite. And you, you would think, okay, so he's a rock and roller, so clearly he must be at least center, if not left, because, I mean, rock and roll, it's all about revolution. And, and he, yeah, I think he was half in the bag, but he said, so I understand you're, you're hoping for David Cameron in the Tories. He's like, oh, yes, of course, of course. You know, yes, that was it. I, I saw that, too. I was up in the middle of the night, and he said, but I thought you were supposed to be a working-class Labour voter. And he said, Labour's done nothing for me. Yes, that was the quote. That was the exact quote, which would kind of... I, I was up. I was up at two or three in the morning watching that. It was ten here, but I was watching the same interview, and I just thought, well, you never really know anybody in rock and roll, do you? But of course, if you've got millions of dollars, maybe you do vote for a conservative government. Well, you have to look at. Bear in mind that these rock and roll millionaires are middle-aged men and women who have humongous amounts of money, and they're probably going to fight to conserve that money. And therefore, it makes sense some of them will be politically conservative. It's like, who's going to take the least of my money and I'm going to vote for them? Well, yeah, we forget about this thing that the fact is, when you look at entertainers, they are businessmen. They are businesswomen. Uh, sometimes. I just think the who was right. Don't trust anybody over 30. Little did they know when they said it that eventually they would mean themselves. <laughs> so there you go. So Nick Pope, UFOs, real or not real? How's that for um, a question? I bet you've never had that one. Oh, that's your opening question. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know my answer to this one. 
in a literal dictionary definition term, of course, real because people see things that they can't explain in the sky. If you're talking about the popular culture interpretation, erroneous interpretation of, of the phrase UFO, i.e. alien spacecraft, my answer is don't know. I'm on the fence. Interestingly, as we've been talking about politics, I'll give you the politician's answer. I can't rule it out. But you can't Ooh, rule it in. Silence. <laughs> no, sorry. Oh, wait, no, I was waiting for the punchline. Well, you see, one of the things silence. here on the Paracast is that we don't go around saying that the Greys or the blonde Venusians are after us. We're saying we don't know what's causing all this stuff to go on, and we want to find some answers. And if it turns out to be Earth-based UFOs or crypto-terrestrials or from another dimension or some phenomenon, natural phenomenon that we don't understand, have you at all had some theories that you find more compelling than others? How about that, Nick? Well, again, I'm I'm sorry to be a bit vague and evasive, but actually, no, I haven't. And I think your, your question illustrates the point perfectly. There are so many different competing theories about this wonderful mystery that we find ourselves embroiled in. Um, extraterrestrials, interdimensionals, intertemporials, um, black projects, exotic atmospheric plasmas. One, one can take all of this and throw it into the mix. But at the end of the day, if any of us had any answers, we wouldn't be having this interview. And the truth of the matter is that none of us know, however much we like to maybe position ourselves as experts. Actually, I'm the first person to say, you know what? I don't know. All of these things are theories that can be thrown into the, the mix, but I, I really don't know which one to pump for. Do you think, Nick, that part of the problem with, and I will use this term consistently throughout the interview, because people, I think, are familiar with it, even though it encompasses a broad, different people look at it different ways. But I'll use the term ufology. Do you think part of the problem with modern ufology has been and continues to be that they spend too much time talking about these theories, arguing about them, um, advocating for them, and not enough time investigating cases anymore? I certainly think there's something to that, and I think the Internet, for all its positive things has exacerbated that problem by putting the focus on, on this subject, the center of gravity, as it were, onto blogs and forums and email lists and websites and discussion groups and all that. Um, and the old-fashioned idea of getting mud on your boots and going out and speaking to a witness and saying, well, what is it? You saw, where was it? Where were you standing? Um, that's gone out of the window. So, yes, I, I agree with that. It's what I found when I was ghost investigating, you know, so much different than the UFO thing, where we would actually go out, talk to witnesses who'd seen things, and then we could set it up and run an investigation ourselves to see if we experienced anything, which is very different from what most UFO investigation is now. In fact, I think that's one of the components that's always been missing from UFO investigation, is not just talking to witnesses and stuff, but then sticking around. You know, if, if there's been a report of a case in X, you know, talk to the witnesses, but then stay at X for a week or two and see if maybe it happens again. You never know. I, I'll just jump in on that sure, if I go might, ahead. Because, yeah. because literally yesterday I was speaking to a scientific group. It's an organization in the UK. There are a number of these groups. I'm not sure whether they're um, wider than the UK, but it's called Cafe Scientifique. And it's basically a loose confederation of people who believe in science and believe that we should look at intriguing mysteries and things, but with a scientific mindset. And 
a question I got asked there by the organiser, which I really hadn't thought of and really did, did set me off on a new track, was, well, when you're interviewing a UFO witness, do you do follow-up interviews, maybe a week, a month afterwards, asking exactly the same things, but inquiring as to whether their perception has changed, whether in the intervening period they've had a chance to reflect, to perhaps cross-check what they think against other information, and, and whether they've kept their opinion or whether their views have evolved. And that was a really interesting question. And I have to say, it stumped me somewhat. And that's exactly the sort of thing that probably should go on in UFO research, but doesn't. Do you think part of the problem is that some, doing that kind of work isn't terribly sexy? It's much, e it's much easier, too, but it's also cooler, perhaps, to stand up in front of a crowd or go on a radio show or whatever, write a book, and say, well, clearly, here's a couple of cases, and by the way, now I'm going to talk about the theoretical implications and aliens from Zeta Reticuli or whatever, as opposed to actually getting in a car, driving to wherever, and doing those kinds of... I mean, before you came on, Gene and I were having a discussion about abduction research to an extent, and I was saying... Look, one of the things that if you want to do serious research into abductions, you shouldn't be hypnotizing people and messing about with their brains. You should be setting cameras up in their bedrooms or wherever if that's, if that's the locale where it's supposedly happening and running a prolonged investigation over a prolonged period of time. Do you think part of the problem with modern ufology is they just don't have any patience? I guess I'll give three answers to that. Three for the price of one. In nice. for the price of one, in reverse order. Um, by the way, this means, Nick, you're going to send us a bill, right? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, well, I don't good. pay the bill. I send him to Paul so he can ignore the bill. Okay. Well, now, the third answer I'll give, I'll do this in reverse order, third answer is, yeah, we're not very patient. We're in, we're in the YouTube generation. People these days watch TV on YouTube and sites like that. So they go to their favorite clips or it's like, did you see the bit in that one hour program where this happened? And, and they'll watch something for maybe two or three minutes. Attention spans are declining, I, I think. Um, so that's one thing. I, I think, yes, our, our attention span is just dis decreasing. So we don't have time in our busy modern lives with our multitasking, etc., to, to maybe go out and do the things that we should do. Another point is, is um, I, I think that, again, in the modern era, there is this tendency to try and showboat. And I'm, I'm trying to answer this question without incriminating myself because arguably I'm one of the worst offenders uh, as somebody who does pop up on things like um, Larry King and Geraldo and Fox News and things like that. But yeah, I mean, self-evidently, if you are in this field and you get a call from, say, a producer and it's like, well, would you like to come on um, Larry King and talk about this? Chances are you will say yes. Yeah. And if it's a choice, I mean, look, let me be totally honest with you. If it was, well, you know what, I was going to re-interview that witness and go out at two in the morning and traipse around in the corner of a muddy field in the freezing cold, or I was going to go on Larry King, I think I know what I'd do. So I'm not necessarily proud of that in investigative terms, but I'm just trying to say that is the real world, whether we like it or not. Well, but at least you've done some investigation. So, yes, uh, I have. 
So, so like hopefully, it's those credentials that get me on the show in the first place. Um, but that's not always the way that television works. Of course, sometimes they'll they'll go for people who've just got a sensational story to tell or a few good sound bites, whether or not they've walked the walk. Yeah. They also, exactly. Nick, want to have the Reader's Digest version of the answer. What does it all mean, Nick? They want disclosure, and this gets us back to one of the other issues in the UFO field, which is not just being lazy and not following up and spending more time dealing with the implications of something we know nothing about, but hoping the governments know. Now, obviously, you were on the inside, but you're constrained by the fact that you were working for the UK government. You couldn't tell us if you knew, could you? I probably couldn't, because I've signed the official Secrets Act that binds me for life, but... I suspect that I could probably hint at it, but I can actually say with hand on heart, the scary truth, certainly so far as the British government is concerned, is that the powers that be, the establishment, the government, the military, the intelligence agencies, actually know no more about this than you or I, on the average person in the street. You know, you won't go to some Air Force base, you won't be able to pull aside the hangar doors and there it is some some great crashed spaceship it's it's not true so from that let me follow up and say or ask you roswell crashed alien spacecraft or not a crashed alien spacecraft because as you know much of modern ufology is hinged on roswell and the idea that alien spacecraft have crashed but from what you just said it sounds to me like you're saying that all of that is not true that there is another explanation. No, I'm not so much saying it's not true. I'm saying certainly with regard to Roswell, I don't know. I mean, I, I did this. I worked for the Ministry of Defense for 21 years. I did three years on the UFO project, but my terms of reference were strictly national. So the things that I did were entirely UK. So I know I had no official access or knowledge into anything that the American government may or may not know about this you know when i look at the the field of ufology and i'm sure we'll get on to discuss things like exopolitics and disclosure when i see a number of people and i'm not going to name names but but when i see a number of people who are absolutely certain that they know the answers the more i think you know as somebody who served for 21 years in government show me someone who says i don't know and they're the real deal the person that says they know the answer to everything probably isn't. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual. A PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free. 30-day trial. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Our co-host, Paul Kimball, we have Nick Pope. 
who was once on the inside of UFO investigation, I guess the UK equivalent of Captain Edward J. Rupelt. Remember him? Before your time, way before, probably. Uh, well, I remember him uh, certainly in terms of if anyone ever asks me to recommend a UFO book, I, I actually recommend his. I say, you know, it's maybe long forgotten, a little bit unfashionable, but it'll probably teach you more about ufology than anything else on the bookshelves. Okay, now we mentioned disclosure, and we have certain people who go around saying, we want the government to tell them. There's nothing new about that. Major Donald Kehoe did that in 1956 with a book called The Flying Saucer Conspiracy. So are we suggesting then these people are basically barking up the wrong tree when they make these demands? Yes, I think they are. I, I think um, there's what I call the demonization of government. And this is the idea that government here are the bad guys, the military are the bad guys. They are somehow the custodians of some great secret that they're keeping from the people. And when you have that adversarial relationship, when you have we are good, they are bad, uh, we're for freedom, they're for cover-up, we're for truth, they're for lies, you won't actually get anywhere, not least because these people won't engage with you. And as I say, it comes back to the point, I think, that... What if, as I actually believe is the case, government doesn't know about this, isn't keeping some great secret from the people, is not withholding the truth. So all this effort that goes into kind of trying to break down some conspiracy, some cover-up, is wasted effort because the conspiracy and the cover-up isn't there. My point is this, if all that passion, if all that energy if all that time was reconfigured onto something more constructive, be it um, mud on boots investigation, be it targeted FOI requests that might turn up some interesting material, then I think we might be better off. But, but for, for all the times that people are screaming and shouting and, and trying to suggest that the government change its policy. I mean, if the government actually doesn't know, it's all wasted energy. That takes us back to Roswell then, of course, because the only way Roswell can be authentic would be for the government to have actually been involved in some sort of conspiracy to recover evidence of a UFO visitation, a crash saucer, the aliens, etc., etc. And if the government doesn't know, then that says Roswell probably didn't happen in that fashion. It may not have done, but I think whether it did or not, Roswell is problematic um, simply by virtue of the time that's elapsed. If you're looking into any incident, whether it's something like Roswell or whether it's some, I, I don't know, some controversy, say, in the Second World War, if you're dealing with a situation where few, if any, of the contemporary witnesses are alive and you're dealing with second and third-hand testimony, compounded by a situation where, for whatever reason, contemporary records are not available, uh, you're dealing with an issue that's really passing from, I, I don't know, almost historical record into legend. And I, I just think it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to disentangle all that. It also goes to the reliability of witness testimony, which is, can somebody 50 or 60 years later really recall what happened? 
because their minds have been polluted by a lot of pop culture about UFOs. So something really happened in 1947, and you don't get to these people till 1977, 87, 97. After they've had a lifetime of experiences, can we really depend on what they tell us? Well, I, I think that would need a psychologist to, to answer it, but I'll give you a little personal anecdote. I left the Ministry of Defense in 2006, and I remember discussing it about six months or a year after it happened. And of course, resigning from government service after 21 years, leaving the Ministry of Defense was one of the most momentous decisions that I'd personally made in my life. And I was telling people this anecdote um, about it, how on, on the day on which I left was, was the day in which a woman came to, to live with me in my house. And I was telling this anecdote for months and months until I realized it was totally wrong. And when I checked my diaries, I realized I was confusing the day on which I had left with the day on which I had tendered my resignation and I had to give, um, I think, six months notice. So now if I could get something so fundamental wrong just a matter of months afterwards what on earth are we to make of people who are trying to recollect something that, that happened decades ago and i think that's i mean it's a slightly frivolous anecdote but i think it illustrates the point quite well um memory human memory is, is extraordinarily unreliable to be fair, and this will come as a surprise to people, because I will now defend the Roswell witnesses, even though I don't think Roswell was the crash of an alien spacecraft. But witness testimony in general, I agree with what you said, Nick. Memory is a touchy subject, especially with the passage of time. With each day that passes, I think the odds are that your memories, I know UFO people hate the term con confabulation and, and all that sort of stuff, but it does happen. So I wouldn't rely solely on the witnesses, but if you can get two or three or four witnesses who independently are saying more or less the same thing, there should be differences in their stories. When you start seeing people tell the exact same story, that's when you should raise a red flag. But if you see people telling slightly different stories, but the core of the story is the same in each case, and if then you can buttress that, and I think this is why the MJ-12 documents became so important to so many people in the 80s. If you can buttress witness testimony with documentary evidence or physical evidence would be great. But if you can find, it's, it's like Bill Clinton's triangulation. If you can, it's not just one thing. It's all of these things confirming these other things independently. Then I think witness testimony is reliable, especially if you can confirm it. The question is, with Roswell, Having said that, the question with Roswell is, well, where is the confirming evidence? There is no physical evidence. So then you're left with, okay, you either need other witnesses who can confirm it, all of whom have the same problems that Gene and you have talked about with memory and time elapse and all that sort of stuff, and you don't have any documentary evidence, unless you, of course, accept the MJ-12 documents as legitimate, which most of ufology doesn't. So as you said, and Nick Redfern and a bunch of other people have said, you know, the Roswell case is is, is very difficult one to deal with, which is why I, I sort of say, well, okay, don't then say that asserted as a proven fact. But there are cases, look at this, here's a radio segue for you, boys. There are cases that are perhaps better than Roswell. Nick, what are, what are some of those cases? What 
I, I, I polled you and I interviewed you for my film Best Evidence, Top 10 UFO Sightings for Yana Bash Plug. And you gave me your list of top 10 cases. And you might not remember what you had as your number one case, but I believe it was either Cosford or the Belgian Triangle case. So you know what? I'll split the difference and ask you to tell us about both of those cases and why you think they're uh, among the best UFO cases ever. I'll do that. And seeing as this is quite a lengthy interview, we'll probably move on to vent orders later. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> may, well, yeah. may well have been some, somewhat in my mind as well. Let's start with the Belgian Triangle. Let's let's do this in chronological order then, um, setting aside Rendlesham. But um, yeah, Belgium had of course had a wave of sightings starting in 1989, moving into 1990. There had been some scrambles of F-16s, the, the aircraft on. QRA, quick reaction alert. On one occasion, it turned out that I think they'd been scrambled erroneously in response to, I think, some laser or searchlight display, some some event on the ground. And there was a protocol set up that I think in response to UFO sightings, no aircraft would be scrambled unless there was something tracked on the, the radar and assessed by the air traffic controllers, the fighting controllers, as being a, a solid structured craft. And on 30th of March 1990, that happened. There were visual sightings. There were reports coming in from all over the country from the gendarmerie. There were uncorrelated targets being tracked on the radar. And, of course, this was Belgian national radar, the Air Force radar, but it's also integrated into the wider NATO network, mm -hmm. and they scrambled two F-16s. The F-16s got airborne, the pilots picked up the UFO on their airborne radars, they attempted to lock on, not not to shoot this thing down, I hasten to add, but, but to try and intercept to get a closer look. And basically the UFO, whatever it was, they lost the lock, maybe the UFO evaded, this bizarre game of cat and mouse, as it were, played itself out in, in the skies over Belgium for a period of time. Uh, skeptics talk about anomalous propagation, maybe certain meteorological conditions that can give rise to false radar returns. They also suggest perhaps that there was some secret prototype aircraft or drone being test flown in Belgian airspace to to see whether it would actually show up on radar and and how people would respond in real time. General Wilfred de Brouwer, who was chief of staff and of the Belgian Air Force at the time, said no, as far as he was concerned, this was a real incident, it was a solid object, and it was a genuine unknown. So it's a fascinating case. <laughs> Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. 
What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Nick Pope, who worked from the inside in terms of UFO investigation. Not inside a UFO, I have to correct that. Our co-host is Paul Kimball. Yeah, just to go back to the um, Belgian case for a second, Nick. What about some of the explanations that have been put forward? The most often one that you will hear, which, as far as I can tell, the Belgian authorities, including General de Brouwer, said, well, no, that couldn't be. But... You often hear skeptics, well, you and I are skeptics, you often hear disbelievers, that's what I'll call them, who will simply say, well, of course, it was an American, it was a top-secret American military aircraft, and they didn't bother to um, to tell the Belgian Air Force or anybody else. Two things about that. What do you think of that explanation? And two, is it, just in general, is it possible that many UFO cases could be top-secret experimental aircraft, that perhaps even elements within, say, the United States Air Force or the Belgian Air Force might not know are going on, even as other elements within the Air Force or the government are conducting these experiments. So kind of a two-pronged question. How does it apply to Belgium in particular, but how does it apply to UFO cases in general? Okay, I'm going to do this in reverse order again. Um, <laughs> on, the, on the general point, yes, absolutely. Of course, at any given time, there are various secret prototype aircraft and drones, some experimental, some actually operational, that will be flying around uh, that have not yet been publicly declared, that you won't see at the big air shows for 10, maybe even 15 years. So I think that's taken as a given. But to qualify that, you don't tend to fly those things over the heads of the general public. you, You tend to fly them in fairly... Uh, remote, restricted ranges, danger areas, uh, and, and such like. So I think, like yes, gr- we... Like Groom me? Lake. Like Groom exactly. Lake. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, so yes, there are black projects, secret prototypes, but I actually don't think that they explain an awful lot of, of these UFO sightings. Now, in relation to Belgium, um, you said, could, could this be? Could this have been an American project that that they'd flown over, and that they had maybe either forgotten to notify, or, or, or more likely, this? I, I guess the question is, well, maybe these things are on such a limited need to know that, that you wouldn't declare them to to maybe the Belgian authorities. I think the difficulty with that theory is this. Territorial integrity of your national airspace is is amongst the most touchy of issues when when it comes to this sort of thing. And diplomatic clearance has to be sought when you're flying any aircraft into another country's airspace, whether or not you're an ally. You know, even if you're the best of friends, it's it's a matter of national pride. It's almost impossible to put it into words, but uh, you can be the best friends in the world, but you you can't do that. The other thing is, look, if you were running a test to fly some sort of secret prototype aircraft or drone, 
into controlled airspace to see whether, without notification, people detected it, to see how they responded, you wouldn't actually want the additional complication of it being another country. You would just do it to your own people. So when you're doing those sorts of tests, if, if it's an American drone or aircraft, you would simply try and penetrate American airspace. Because otherwise, I mean, the, the consequences in terms of the diplomatic fallout would be immense. I'm not a believer that, that the Belgian case is attributable to Americans probing Belgian defenses, because in my experience, that's not the way it works. I think that's actually a great point that you don't often hear even um, people within the UFO research community talk about. They're often divorced from the political or historical realities of the real world. And there are very real world, as you point out, which people who are familiar with political or military policy would know, very real world consequences of doing something as the American Air Force are alleged to have done in over Belgium. I can tell you as a Canadian that the Americans would be ill-served to be trying to fly test aircraft over our national airspace. And a further complication would be, I would think, that you wouldn't want the Belgian Air Force or any other Air Force scrambling interceptor jets on the off chance that they might actually shoot your test aircraft down. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Seems pretty risky to me. For all sorts of reasons, political and military, that, that one, if you'll excuse the pun, doesn't fly. Very good, very good. I like that. That's a good pun. Oh, that's a um, job. Yeah, it's very punny. Um, <laughs> the Cosford case, then, which, and I'm just going to say one word to you before you even begin to talk to Co- about Cosford, and then you can bring this part of this word into your Cosford discussion. Um, helicopters. Go ahead, Nick. Talk about okay. the Cosford case. Okay. <laughs> well, before I start with the Cosford case, let me actually unpack as we like to say, one one rather interesting little piece of trivia about this incident. Okay. Um, the interesting piece of trivia is that it occurred three years to the very night after the Belgian case that we've just been discussing. Oh. The Belgian case was late on the 30th and in the early hours of the 31st of March 1990. The Cosford incident took place over a period of six hours. Guess when? 30th of March, 31st of March, 1993, right in the middle of my time on the UFO project. As I say, a wave of sightings, the earliest one, I haven't got the file in front of me, it's been declassified and released now by MOD, but um, the earliest sighting, I believe, 8.30 on the 30th of March, the latest one, 2.40 in the morning on the 31st. Sightings witnessed by several hundred people that we know about, probably a lot more that didn't report. Many of those witnesses were police officers, military personnel, and particularly, the reason this this incident is even known as the Cosford incident, two military bases, two Air Force bases, Cosford and Shawbury, were directly overflown by this. A patrol of Air Force police officers saw it at RAF Cosford, and the Met Officer at RAF Shawbury saw this. Now, the Met Officer is is someone who I've spoken to on on a number of occasions. Uh, Firstly, of course, you know, literally just three or four hours after he'd had his sighting. This was a man with eight years' experience in the Air Force, and and he said he saw this large triangular-shaped craft 
midway in size between a C-130 Hercules transport and a Boeing 747, flying slowly towards the base, maybe no more than 30 or 40 miles an hour, uh, 200 feet above the ground, 200 feet maybe to the side, firing a narrow beam of light down at the ground that he said was tracking backwards and forwards as if it was looking for something. Uh, he said there was a low-frequency humming sound coming from this craft, quite unpleasant, rather like standing in front of a bass speaker. He said he could feel this as well as hear it. And he said suddenly from going very, very slowly, the beam just switched off and this thing accelerated away to the horizon. Uh, his words, many, many times faster than a military jet. And this was, this was a man with eight years' experience in the Air Force. So what do you make of it? I mean, I don't the, know. There, there's a sim- <laughs> that's sort of, you know, that takes me back to my days briefly um, in a courtroom. You know, just sort of go, well, what do you make of that? <laughs> yeah, um, no, I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, my head of division, I, I was the, the desk officer, the subject matter expert, as it were. My head of division, considerably more senior than me, thought that the whole UFO issue was a waste of time and money, didn't want the UFO project embedded in his uh, division at all, even he on this occasion got quite excited and on one occasion almost literally ran into my office with a map that he'd drawn on his own initiative trying to plot out the track of of all the sightings Uh, and he he was telling me that he'd found some sort of pattern, which actually I don't think he had, but um, some interesting insight into the psychology of belief that this diehard skeptic, this died-in-the-wool civil servant who thought this whole thing was a waste of time and money, was was suddenly, Nick, Nick, look at this. <laughs> look what I've found. Um, he briefed the assistant chief of the air staff, a, a two-star military officer, one of Britain's most senior air force officers. And again, I haven't, I'm afraid, got the papers in front of me, but from memory, the quote was, in summary, there would seem to be some evidence that on the night in question, an object or objects uh, of unknown origin uh, was operating in UK airspace. So have I gotten it wrong? Because I I mentioned helicopters. I vaguely remember, and maybe I'm wrong about this. Um, Wasn't that one of the explanations that was brought out for the Cosford case, or am I thinking of another case in the UK? Um, I I don't know. I mean, uh, there there was, uh, I mean, you know, people talk about a vast triangular-shaped object firing a beam of, of light. There was a letter in the Daily Mail which is one of our national daily newspapers, but no one could actually be sure whether it wasn't actually written by a sceptical UFO buff um, that that said, oh, it was a police helicopter shining its searchlight. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, but A, there was some suspicion, and I got an email to say that some sceptic wrote that letter himself. B... This, you know, the witness was an Air Force officer with eight years' experience, and and he said, look, this travelled many times faster than a military jet, something like a um, an F-15, an F-16, something like that. Now I know an awful lot about helicopters, but you know, and I'm not, I'm not the world's greatest expert. But one thing I do know is that they don't do that. 
Well, no helicopters that we know of. Um, uh, no. So, yeah. I, uh, yeah. You Maybe mentioned before, Nick, about the fact that the person you work with was more or less not interested in having this job in a sense yes. of being saddled with having to check into flying saucers. Do you think as a result that maybe some evidence or information you could have acquired wasn't acquired because of the disinterest? I wouldn't say that, but I think there were constraints put on my activity. I mean, my, my terms of reference, I, I think I mentioned earlier, were purely national. So I was almost exclusively limited to researching and investigating sightings that had occurred within the United Kingdom. On occasion, I could maybe make some inquiries a little bit wider. For example, on the Cosford incident, because of the similarity, not, not least the spooky coincidence of, of the, the dates and the fact that it was three years to the day after, we actually did manage to make some inquiries through the British Embassy in in Brussels. And I think the air attaché, the British air attaché, attaché or the British ambassador managed to speak, I think, to Colonel de Brouwer, um, then I think by then General de Brouwer, he got a promotion, uh, and to the two F-16 pilots. But generally speaking, my terms of reference placed limits on what I could do. And it may well be that the skepticism of my head of division reinforced that. I, I might have had a little bit more leeway uh, had this particular individual been a little bit been a little bit more open. But I don't think I, I don't think it it stopped me from uncovering some great truth about all this. It was an inconvenience but it wasn't it wasn't a conspiracy and it wasn't a showstopper. Now, of course, some of the skeptics who are involved in disclosure, skeptics of what you did, are going to say, number one, Nick knows what's going on, but he can't tell because he's constrained by the Secrets Act. Or number two, that particular office that you worked in, that's just the cover-up. The real UFO investigation is going on elsewhere. What do you say about that? Well, you see, it's almost impossible for me to respond to either of those, you know, without people people just saying, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Let's let's take the first one, people saying that I know some great truth, but I'm not saying, I don't know the friendly face, I'm disinfo, whatever. Uh, if, I, if I say to you, look, no, 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 that's not the case. I'm actually telling it how it is. People that believe otherwise will, will simply say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? So I, I can't really carry those people with me by my denial. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Exactly. And on, on the other issue, the idea that, that somehow the job that I did was just some shop window and that, that really interesting stuff went on elsewhere, I could say, but look, the Ministry of Defense is now re declassifying and releasing the UFO files. This showed that we were at the heart of everything. This showed that we had the policy lead. We had the investigative lead. The defense intelligence staff, who it's been suggested were the real players here, the papers, the government files show that they were actually responding to our requests. But you see, if people believe otherwise, they'll simply say, all oh, that 
documentation is faked anyway. So, again, exactly as you say, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm, I'm not going to be able to dissuade people by saying, look at the government files, because they'll say they're all faked or doctored. <laughs> Before we split for hour number two of this episode, where can our listeners find out more of the things that you write about? Uh, my own website, nickpope.net, the Ministry of Defense website, uh, I think just md.uk, and the National Archives website, just put in National Archives UK. Everything that I talk about can be backed up by the government's own records. I'm not one of these people that, that says, this, you know, I worked here and there and take my word for it. The files show that I did. Nick Pope with co-host Paul Kimball coming up again on the other side of the PowerCast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. The co-host is Paul Kimball. We're returning with Nick Pope, who worked with the Ministry of Defense and was one of their UFO guys for three years. How did you get sucked into that, for those who haven't heard the original story? How did they say, Nick, you got to do this? It was quite by accident. I had no previous knowledge or interest in this subject at all. I was just a government guy, minding my own business, wondering what my next tour of duty would be. I was doing a job where I'd been seconded into the Joint Operations Center as a briefer during the first Gulf War. And I happened to be working for a guy down there, and he said, look, once all this is finished, I know you're looking for a move. I have a vacancy. I'm quite impressed with your work. Would you like to come and work for me? For me? And I said, uh, yeah, okay, what's the job? And he said, UFOs. And I said, all right, okay, I'll do it. And that was it. So You didn't say what? Um, <laughs> no, I, I knew. I, I knew that there was a UFO job because one of the things that young employees in the Ministry of Defense used to spend a lot of time doing was going through the big, at, at the time it was called the Green Book, and it was basically the telephone directory, and it had brief job descriptions of almost everyone in the department. And of course everyone had spotted this thing that just said UFOs, and everyone, everyone looked at it and said, what? So of course I was one of those people that had looked at it and said, what? And little did I know that the offer would come my way. A thousand to one chance, if not more, but it, it happened, and um, yeah. Did you have any sort of pre-existing interest in the UFO phenomenon before that, uh, or not, you know, great knowledge of it, or was it just kind of, oh, well, here's another job for you that sounds interesting? I had no, I had no, I had no pre-existing knowledge or interest. I had mixed feelings about it, to be honest. On the one hand, I guess like everyone who had flicked through the MOD green book, the telephone directory, and seen that job that just said UFOs, I had been intrigued and I had thought, 
what on earth is that, if you'll excuse the pun? That's interesting. On the other hand, I was young and hugely ambitious, and I did worry whether something like that might not sit too comfortably on my CV. And I thought, well, look, actually, if I'm to get on and, and to be promoted to the more senior levels, the sorts of jobs I should be doing are the jobs in the defense minister's office, for example, you know, S of S, SecDef, you know, those those sorts of posts where you want to get SecDef and you want to get in to to the office, even at a junior level, but just to be there. And I thought, well, those are the sorts of jobs I should be doing, not not this. So I had mixed feelings. Now, you had mentioned earlier in the first segment the Rendlesham case, and I suspect you think I'm going to ask you about that right now, but I'm not. I'm going to save that for later. Okay. What I, what I want to ask you about right now is something that I don't think you talk about very often, and no, it's not your childhood. Remote viewing. Actually, we're going to hypnotize you yeah, and that's search right. for evidence of alien hybrids. Okay. Or, or not. I confess it all. Oh, gosh, I confess it all. I remember the last time you confessed something. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> That's going to be on the next episode, ladies and gentlemen, The Secret Files of Nick After Pope. the watershed. Yeah, it was, at a, it was a bar in London. Remote Uh-oh. viewing. You have on your website a page that I suspect maybe not a lot of people log on to. They probably go to Rendlesham or UFOs first or whatever. Um, but you have a page on remote viewing, and I didn't know this until I was doing some research for the interview here, that there had actually been a Ministry of Defense study into remote viewing, and that it actually had something to do with 9-11, or at least part of it had to do with um, 9-11. You write here, the, the MOD had attempted to recruit psychics to track down targets, which almost certainly included bin Laden and weapons of mass destruction. Could you tell us a bit about the, the MOD's remote viewing program? Sure. I'm embarrassed to say that the headline finding about the MOD's remote viewing project uh, was that it was totally mishandled. And, and again, don't take my word for this. You can go on to the MOD website, MOD.UK, put in the phrase remote viewing, and you'll find this report that was formally classified secret UK eyes only. And, and you'll see, as, as you've just said, that what this essentially was, was fairly shortly after 9-11, the MOD probably not coincidentally, started a project to try and recruit psychics. Parts, large parts of the the report are blacked out in the interesting bits where they say what the targets were. But, but you know, as, as somebody who's worked alongside people in intelligence, I, I can tell you this, and this, it's not a great secret, your intelligence targets as a nation um, do not change. They're fixed. You may have different means of going after your intelligence targets. That may include human intelligence, i.e. agents on the ground. It may include interception of communications. It may include satellite uh, surveillance. But your intelligence targets don't change. All you've actually got is different means of trying to access those targets. So in a sense, remote viewing is nothing more or less 
unusual or sinister than just another means of going after your intelligence targets. Your targets don't change. Your targets are always going to be spies, terrorists, weapons, drugs, that sort of thing. So right. remote viewing was just another way of going after it. Well, yes, to to a degree, but I would think that most people, if you were to poll 10 people on the streets in front of Trafalgar Square or here in Halifax and said, hmm, which do you think is more likely, that we're using human spies or traditional intelligence gathering methods that we would all know of from movies and stuff to go after Osama bin Laden or these, these intel targets, or we've got a bunch of psychics. Do, do you think the government's involved in that? I think... Ten out of ten of those people would probably go psychics. <laughs> no wonder we haven't found them. <laughs> We're using psychics to find them. But does the fact that the Ministry of Defense, as the American government did, as, I, as the Soviet government did, as I suspect a lot of governments did and maybe still do, try and employ remote viewers and psychics in an intelligence capacity indicate that there might actually be something to remote viewing? What do you, what do you think of remote viewing just as a subject, Nick? Okay, two points on this. First point... There are some countries, because of historical legacy, because of color, language, ethnicity, whatever, where it is incredibly difficult, for example, to insert an agent. I mean, you may try and turn someone who's already a citizen, but it's, it's very difficult, for example, to get an illegal in. And, and that's as much as I'm going to say about that. The other point about what do we think about remote viewing, what do we think about psychic spying, does it work, whatever. The, the way I would characterize it is this. This is what we called a classic low probability, high consequence situation. Now, low probability, high consequence, or as it's sometimes termed, low probability, high impact, is a term that originated in business, but it, it's been incorporated into the intelligence community. And, and as it says on the tin, what it's really saying is, look, even if you think there's a vanishingly small chance of this working, if it does, the consequences, the, the, the benefits that we would reap if we could get this to work would be immense. So that's why MOD had a a remote viewing program, it wasn't because corporately we'd all bought into this idea, we'd all signed up to the idea that, that psychics could find these things. It was just, look, if there's a one in a thousand chance that they can, let's take that gamble, because if, if they can, great. Okay, is sure. there a one in a thousand chance that any of this really worked? What have you heard? I don't know. Fair and enough. What, if, I, if I did, I couldn't say anyway. Yeah, no, exactly. There you go. But leaving aside the Ministry of Defense's, um, and you can actually, folks, you can go to Nick's website, nickpope.net, and Nick might not check this page very often, but there's a direct link on his remote viewing page. <laughs> he has a remote viewing page. You can take the direct link right there to the MOD study. And yes, and, and this so. is, as a, yeah, absolutely, this is not me. You can go onto my website and you can see me pontificating about it, but then you can say, no, don't listen to that idiot. Just see what the MOD study says. You can get right to the real thing. I think actually at the end of your entire page in your pontificating, you say, now don't listen to me. <laughs> um, actually, the psychic spies are on your trail is the last thing that you write. So. Oh, yes, I did. I remember that. Yeah. Because oh. this, this is an article I wrote 
I wrote for one of our national newspapers, and I think I, I ended it by saying something provocative, by saying, so if you were one of the bad guys, against your expectation, um, against your every belief, we're coming to get you, <laughs> or something like that. It do, yeah, it does sound, and I mean this is the highest compliment. It does sound very Nick Redfernish, um, because he sort of you guys sometimes write in the same way, but you write, but maybe the strangest X file in the MOD's history has a final message for the bad guys. Beyond your understanding and against all odds, we're coming to get you. The psychic spies are on your trail. That was for the Daily Express, and anybody who's those read the Daily were indeed my words. It's um, gosh. <laughs> Good to hear. I, I wrote that I think about three years ago. But and only um, on the Paracast do you find your words thrown back at you. <laughs> only on the Paracast do I say, "Gosh, I'm good." You <laughs> can do that. I mean, that's fine. You know, yeah, we're all witty. welcome to say that we're good, great, or otherwise. Hey neighbors, would you like to see the Paracast live long and prosper? Well, if you know of anyone who wants to advertise their products or services on the Paracast, have them contact us directly. Tell them to write to sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And we'll also accept your donations by PayPal. Send your PayPal donation to the same address, sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And thanks for listening. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. We have Nick Pope, who says, gosh, I'm good. And we have Paul Kimball, who says, gosh, I'm better. <laughs> and we have Gene Steinberg, who's old as the hills. Fair enough. And they were alive with the sound of music, they told me a long time ago. I think Brad Steiger said that I was here before the dinosaurs. <laughs> okay. I don't want to get into that, but let's go back to Rendlesham Forest. Let's take a journey into Rendlesham Forest. What can we learn that maybe we haven't heard too much about, Nick? Well, I'm loath to spend five or ten minutes giving an overview of this case because I suspect that you and all the, the Paracast people will be familiar with this. So let me get ahead of that. We can go back to that if, if you want. But... Um, What's happened literally in the last few days, which is quite interesting, is on Facebook, I think John Burroughs, one of the key witnesses to this, has started a group called Justice for the 81st Security Police Squadron, Bent Waters. I saw and, that, yeah. Yeah, and he's getting a lot of the people, a lot of these people, John Burroughs, Jim Penniston, Steve LaPlume, Larry Warren, uh, all these people are now coming together via Facebook and probably in other places, and they're saying, right, look, this is the 30th anniversary of this case. We feel we were let down by the chain of command, both in terms of this being something above and beyond our experience and in terms of some of the allegations of what went on afterwards, threats, drugs, that sort of thing. And these people are lobbying fairly aggressively, and it's, it's interesting through social networking sites like Facebook that we are getting this kind of activism now, not from the UFO community, but from those who were directly involved, those who were there. And I, I saw, um, I think on Jim Penniston's Facebook page, him saying, right, 
all you people who are probably looking at this but haven't yet got in touch, who were there at Bent Waters and Woodbridge, I, I want to talk to you guys. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm actually looking at it right now. It's the Justice for the Bentwaters 81st Security Police at Rendlesham Forest 1980 Facebook page. And um, I've just joined. Uh, I assume, Nick, perhaps you've joined. Yes, um, I have. If, if, if you go to my Facebook page or Nick's Facebook page, you can you can you'll be able to find the link and just go to Facebook and join in. It has and Burroughs was the creator. They have one thousand and sixty two members already, many of whom I assume are UFO buffs and such. But also probably some people are going to come forward out of this who maybe haven't been heard from before. Yes, and, and I think um sorry to interrupt. I, I sure think, no um, go ahead. No, no, just to chip in. Um, I, I think uh, that's absolutely right. The most important people who've joined that group are probably people whose names we don't yet know, but who were there. Yeah, and it's it's amazing to sort of, like we were talking about UFO research in the first segment and boots on the ground and mud in the field and all that sort of stuff. Maybe all you really need is a computer, a keyboard, and Facebook. <laughs> you can start an account and link into people that way it gets us a bit off of rendlesham but the social it fascinates me the social networking aspect of of how we all interact with people even within the ufo research community i remember nick your facebook page i think about a year or a year and a half ago i was making fun of you because you either didn't have <laughs> Where one you? Or you, oh, or you, I, had about, you had about well, 12 friends but oh now, i was gonna say well i'm gonna defriend you then <laughs> yeah well it's yeah the ultimate yeah, I've had more than a few girls who've done that. Um, the, the ultimate insult to be defriended on Facebook. Ouch. Mm. But um, but now you've got thousands, I think, of friends. Well, I um, think I've got uh, about three thousand five hundred. Uh, but I'm I'm gonna I guess hit this issue that a lot of people are gonna hit that apparently Facebook doesn't let you have more than five thousand. And yes. I know that Whitley Strieber had had this because I think he hit that the other day, I guess I'm either going to have to open a second account or I'm going to have to convert my existing account to a fan site as opposed to a friend site, which I would think sounds a little bit sniffy. It's like, don't you know who I am? But I don't well, know. No, I set up a fan site for myself. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh -oh. But, well, I have to think about that. Ooh, because I only have 25 friends right now, and most of them are about to... <laughs> cut me off so it doesn't matter are you not popular i, I yeah I, I had the same no i have 159 uh, fans i had the same view you know which is why facebook has changed it from a fan site to i think now it just says you like this as opposed to being a fan of because uh, people were i didn't want people to be fans i just wanted to give them a place where they could read some of the stuff that i'd published about ufos or whatever so i'm surprised you don't have one maybe I sh i'll start one for you i will start the nick pope fan site on facebook Oh, but then I'll have all sorts of people who want to connect with me connecting to something with which I'm not involved. And, you know, this is where it does get confusing. Um, this is where I cackle maniacally. <laughs> That's exactly okay. But going back to Randallstrom, anyway, thank you for bringing that up, though. I, I actually hadn't noticed that. Uh, I think somebody had sent me an invite to that particular group, and I got 20 invites in a day, and I usually just say ignore, ignore, ignore. But I've gone back and joined up. Tremendous resource. Um, so look it up, folks, through either my Facebook page or next or, or, or whoever. But go back to the Randallstrom case. That's sort of breaking news, as we say. Is there anything? There's The anniversary is coming up. Correct this year, isn't it? Yes, we're in the anniversary. Um, obviously, the anniversary itself falls in December, but 
but we are in the 30th anniversary year. So we've got the Facebook group that we've talked about. We've got John, John Burroughs maybe trying to organize a physical get-together where some of the people who are involved in this literally sit around the table and brainstorm things. We've got researchers like Linda Moulton Howe doing some very good work finding some of the people whose names are perhaps a little bit less known in, in this. Some of the people on B flight as opposed to D flight. I may have it vice versa. But, um, you know, a lot of people looking at this. Some TV production companies obviously looking and thinking, well, maybe there's an opportunity for an interesting documentary here. It's been done before, obviously, on History Channel, on Sci-Fi Channel, on Discovery, I think. But um, there's room, I'm sure, for a, an anniversary documentary, particularly if we could get some of the people together. The one note of caution that I would sound, and this is a conversation that maybe I would have with people like uh, Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, Larry Warren. When people like that say that they were let down by the chain of command. I do understand what they're saying, but there is a danger, I think, in creating what I would call a them and us situation with, right. with this incident, where perhaps people like Charles Holt and maybe some of the other officers feel a little bit disincentivized with regard to engaging on this. If they feel that they're being demonized or portrayed as the bad guys. Now, it may be that there are some bad guys in all of this, but I don't actually think it was any of the people on the ground at the time. But I think there is this danger, and I, I know in the military there is always this difference between the officers and the other ranks. What I don't want to see is arguably our best opportunity of making real progress on this case. Going up in smoke because there is a sort of schism between officers and other ranks. So I think there has to be a little bit of give and take here. I would agree with that. You mentioned two people who have often been at odds, um, not necessarily directly in the same room kind of thing, but Larry Warren on the one hand and Charles Halt on the other hand. Now, I've interviewed both men. I've um, spent some time with Larry at a couple of UFO conferences. He's a very engaging, sort of out-there guy, which is kind of, he has an energy. That's the best way to put it. He's fun. And Halt, of course, is a totally different cat, sort of retired colonel who's very proper. And, you know, when you talk to the two of them, it's two totally different interviews. And it goes back to that Roswell thing I was talking about, or witnesses, where there are clear differences in the stories that Warren tells and in the story that Halt tells. But it seemed to me trying to reconcile the two and trying to reconcile a lot of the other stories around Rendlesham, that there was a core where they could probably all agree on certain events happening that evening. What are the core events at Rendlesham, Nick, that you think, and, and this is a bit of a recap maybe for some folks, but let's try and distill it to the three or four things that almost everybody can agree on happened that night that make it one of the best UFO cases of ever. What's the core of the Rendlesham case? Well, okay, I, I will address that. But before I do, I, I guess, and I'm probably quoting your president, but um, I, I think that the Rendlesham, the Bentwaters witnesses might want to focus on the fact that there's far more that binds them together than sets them apart. Um, I, I just have to say, I have to stop you there. You said, <laughs> my president? I'm a Canadian. Oh, 
you horrible imperialist from the mother country. That's this is why we left the empire. Jeans president. There you go. Fair enough. All right, we're back in the empire. Jeans president. But you know, if you buy into some of these conspiracy theories about the North American Union, who knows? Well, that's right. <laughs> Canada is you know, taking over. Yeah. That's a whole nother show. Yes, true enough. Now, what, um, what, yeah, what can they agree on? What binds them together? Okay. I think what binds them together is this. Just about everyone agrees that in the early hours of the 21st of December 1980, unusual lights were seen in the forest, and some of the military personnel, thinking that maybe an aircraft had crashed, went out to investigate. I don't think that's disputed. Even the Lighthouse Brigade would probably concede that. The second thing that I, I don't think is disputed is, is that obviously, because this testimony is in the public domain, John Burroughs and, and Jim Penniston have said, yeah, look, we saw something and we approached it. And Jim says he got closer to John. Jim obviously has sketches of, of the craft itself and symbols on the side which are somewhat akin to Egyptian hieroglyphs. John was maybe a little bit further back, doesn't necessarily remember it the same way as, as Jim. Obviously, that's I, I think there's some commonality there. One of the other things that's not disputed is that two nights later, Charles Holt was at a social function. Somebody came up to him and said, Sir, it's back. Holt said, What? What are you talking about? What's back? Uh, he was told the UFO is back. He threw together a small team of people. He went out into the forest again. I don't think even the skeptics dispute this. Charles Holt went out into the forest. He took with him a handheld dictaphone to record his thoughts and observations as he went out. We've all heard the Holt tape, I'm sure. Uh, he took out uh, light tools, powerful generators on the back of trucks designed to illuminate the forest to see if he could literally and metaphorically shed light on on all of this uh, none of that is disputed colonel holt's tape if you listen to it describes the ufo firing beams of light down at the woodbridge base again i don't suspect you have to be a believer or a skeptic to accept that that's real, that that tape is genuine, that's what he recorded, that's what he genuinely thought was happening. So it wasn't all a lighthouse? Uh, no. No, I mean, Charles, you know, these, these people aren't stupid. Yeah, many of them had been posted there for months, if not years. They were familiar with the area. They'd seen the lighthouse before. Indeed, Charles Holt, on, on one occasion, said... He even took a bearing on the UFO he was seeing by the lighthouse. And he said, well, look, I was looking at the lighthouse there. The UFO was there. Therefore, these were X degrees apart in terms of separation. Yeah. One of the interesting things I find about, and I've written about military witnesses and police witnesses before and how I sometimes, I do think that UFO researchers sometimes overstate the quality of, of them as opposed to just a general witness. I think certain types of military and police witnesses would be because of their training better. But, you, you know, your average soldier, I'm not convinced necessarily when dealing with something anomalous, is going to be 
any qualitatively better than your average civilian witness. However, having said that, when you have a deputy base commander of a major installation in the United Kingdom run by the Americans, where there may or may not have been nuclear weapons, but certainly in a very important base, and a bunch of other people around him, including security police who are, who are seeing this and reporting this and recording it, too, which to me, I would say well, that's very good procedure. That's smart. It shows, you know, th- this wasn't some drunken stumble in the woods. They were they had enough sort of intelligence to to record it as they went along. It's very it's very hard to believe these allegations. You know that it was a lighthouse that all of these people somehow mistook a lighthouse that was what a couple of miles off on the shore there. The interesting thing for me, and sorry to natter on here for a bit, but when I interviewed Halt, he was very cagey. And when we were on camera, he came across, obviously, much like you, I suppose, with the Official Secrets Act or whatever. There were things that he would say, and there were obviously things that he wouldn't say. When we turned the camera off, there were more things that he would say, and eventually we got him to say some of them on camera. And the thing that's the thing that struck me the most, yeah, I, you know, I talk a lot, but eventually you get you make people comfortable when you're an interviewer, and then they will agree to say uh, perhaps more than they would have. The one thing that struck me the most, it didn't make it into my film, but was the empathy that Halt seemed to have for the men under his command that I had never actually, and perhaps he had, but I had never heard him publicly sort of talk about this, that he thought that they had been very poorly treated, that there was something that they hadn't been told. And uh, I think he genuinely felt very badly about that because he was, you know, their commanding officer and he couldn't help them. I think he felt a bit guilty about that. And so when you talk about common interests that these people have, the bridge between officers and enlisted personnel, I think that might be the bridge. I think the officers, in this case, Halt, has a great deal of sympathy for the people that were under his command and feels a great deal of responsibility, that burden of responsibility for not being able to give them an answer, for not being able to help them the way I think he thinks he, he should have. Um, have you ever gotten that read from Colonel Halt? Uh, I'll tell you what, before Nick Pope answers that question about whether we got that read from Colonel Halt. This is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Our co-host is Paul Kimball. We have Nick Pope. And just a reminder for PowerCast listeners, we have an interview with John Burroughs where he sat across from me in our main studio, June 21st, 2009. Check it out at thepowercast.com for the link. Okay, Nick, we await your answer. Okay, again, recapping, just going, I, I guess, back to the beginning of Paul's question. I think one of the most interesting things about this is that when you look, and yes, I absolutely agree, uh, I often talk about police and military witnesses, and I never say these people are infallible. Of course, there's no such thing as an infallible witness, 
But um, it is interesting when one gets these sorts of witnesses. And the interesting thing about the Bentwaters witnesses is that even if you say military witnesses are not infallible, in terms of the sorts of branches of the military that these people were in, it puts them just about as high up the league table as it would be possible to get in that these people were law enforcement and security personnel. Agreed. So I, I think that's, that's the one thing. Military does not mean infallible, but in terms of who these people were, they were, you know, pretty reliable people and in the spectrum of things, maybe people who were less likely than others to make mistakes. Now, going on to the other issue, this, this, again, this critical issue of the differences between the officers and the other ranks. I mean, this, this is a massive issue, and it has the potential to make or break this case, I think. If everything goes right, the officers and the other ranks should come together and say, look, again, <laughs> this is Obama, there is more that binds us together and sets us apart. But I think if you wanted to drive a wedge between people, it would be possible to do that. Mm. And I, I think there is a danger here that people will feel anger of, about this, particularly some of the people who were maybe 18, 19, 20 at the time. This was their first overseas tour of duty. They were thrown into a situation above and beyond their experience. There was nothing in the manual on, on this. Very, very difficult situation. So I don't know how that's going to play out. I do hope that these people will talk to each other and perhaps not, not end up in a confrontational situation. But that is a danger. I think one of the most interesting things is that there are some junior officers and some medium-ranking officers whose names we know, but who perhaps we need a little bit more direct testimony from Bruce England, Malcolm Sickler, people like that. Those are perhaps the people that we need to hear from to, to say, what can you add to this? One of the things that, just to pick up on something you said about military and police witnesses, um, and I absolutely agree about the quality of the witnesses in the Rendlesham case in particular, but the one thing that I would say that military and police personnel um, in particular, police personnel have over your average civilian witness, having been a police officer with the RCMP briefly in my younger days, is that the first thing they drill into you, even when you're a special constable, note-taking. When you see something, when you observe something, you don't just rely on your memory. You take notes almost immediately and certainly very shortly thereafter so that you have a record of what you saw. I think that's often overlooked and I don't think most civilians do that. I don't think most people when they see things like UFOs or whatever would run home and write a lengthy report on what they've seen. They might tell people but they're relying probably on memory whereas a police officer, certainly a military police officer, I would suspect most military personnel are required to write reports shortly thereafter when the memory's fresh, but they've also had an opportunity to reflect for a bit about what's happened. And I think that's the perfect kind of report where your memory's fresh, but you've had an hour or two or three to sort of step back from it and reflect on what's happened. So I just wanted to, to make that point. Well, that's where, I, again, just interrupting, but it's interesting to look at Jim Penniston's testimony and, of course, his police notebook. Yes. Um, and, and that's 
something that's in the public domain. Again, I don't have it in front of me, but I do remember this one quote that I think he scribbled down where it said, speed, impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We actually, I think we have a couple of Penniston's drawings in the Best Evidence film, I, as I recall the clip. I will post the clip from my film when a thread pops up on this show on the Paracast forums. I'll post the clip from my film, which Nick is in. And uh, some of Penniston's drawings are there in an interview with Colonel Halt. And hopefully folks will look... I, I think people are familiar with the Rendlesham case, but it really is, I think, one of the five or six best cases, and people should really delve into it much more deeply than just a surface examination of, of what happened. Okay, Nick, it's not a lighthouse. What are your thoughts about what it might be? Oh, goodness, I don't know. I mean, you know, again, I come back to this idea that if, if it isn't something totally exotic and above and beyond our understanding then maybe we're back to this idea of some black project, some secret prototype drone testing defenses. Maybe it's British, maybe it's American, maybe it's Russian. I don't know. But what if it was something, a test aircraft? Why would you keep it secret for so long? Because we assume it would already be deployed by the time yeah, we're well, dealing with this, it 20, 30 years later. This is the problem. This is the problem with that particular theory. And I, I, I know that um, Jacques Vallée has put forward the theory that this was some psychological operation, a psyop, that these people were deliberately set up, that this scenario was constructed and these events unfolded to try to provoke a reaction from these people, or rather to test what reaction there would be. Will they ignore it? Will they shoot at it? Uh, what will they do? Now, I don't actually believe that, because he, here's my point. If this was a PSYOP, if this was some carefully constructed event whereby the powers that be said, but we're going to create an incident, we're going to intrude into... Uh, the controlled airspace. We're going to see how these people react so that we can maybe manipulate and construct our own uh, scenarios. The one thing they wouldn't have done is then let this whole scenario play itself out, whereby the United States Air Force made a report to the Ministry of Defense, files got created. No, if this was a PSYOP, what would have happened would have been this. They would have run the op, and then they would have just picked up the phone and said, look, guys, it's a PSYOP. It's classified above top secret. Don't discuss it. Forget it. End of story. And no documents would ever have been created. There would have been no paper trail. No witnesses would have spoken about it. End of story. Okay, just looking at the overall picture, and Paul has a question, but let me just ask you about the overall picture. Now, a couple of rounds of Ministry of Defense documents about UFOs have been released. And this is getting into something maybe you can't even say. Is there much left? Um, yes. Um, five batches of MOD UFO files have been released. This, uh, the, the declassification and release of the MOD's UFO files began in May 2008, uh, the last batch the fifth batch that was released was 18th of February uh, this year, 2010. Uh, this is an ongoing process, uh, absolutely. 
There is no smoking gun, there's no spaceship in a hangar document, but there are thousands and thousands of, of absolutely fascinating documents on this. Um, as I say, we've had five batches of files so far. The, the sixth is out, I think, um, uh, very shortly in, in the summer. Um, so, yeah, this is a, an interesting story. Paul. We used to have a game show here in Canada for high school students called Reach for the Top, where they would, it was kind of a quiz show. And um, at the end, they would have what they called the short snappers section, where they would ask you a bunch of quick questions and totally unrelated to anything, um, sort of a series of non sequiturs. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play short snappers with you, Nick, as we run into what I think are about the final 15 minutes. I'll tell you what, before we do that, before we have the short, (laughs) snappy, pithy responses, I understand the chief pithy person right now is none other than Apple Steve Jobs for those one to three word responses everybody quotes from him anyway for 58 years fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Nick Pope. Our co-host is Paul Kimball. And now, short and pithy, <laughs> Paul. Short and pith helmety. 9-11, Boy. Nick. Give us the short story on 9-11 because, and I, just to set this up, the X-Conference 2007, you and I in the hotel bar, surrounded by a bunch of very friendly at the start and perhaps not so friendly people at the end, discussing over a beer or two 9-11. And I think... You were definitely labeled a government stooge, and I'm pretty sure I was, because we both were supporting what you might call the official line on on 9-11, surrounded by people who did not. But I do remember asking one of them at one point, I said, well, have you read the 9-11 Commission report? He looked at me and he said, no, I don't have to. I know it's wrong. Talk a bit about the 9-11 conspiracy theory, Nick, and what your views on that are. Well, I did 21 years in the Ministry of Defense, and my last of duty was in the Directorate of Defense Security at Deputy Director level. 9-11 was done by Al-Qaeda, and these people were, as the 9-11 Commission report correctly said, disciplined, patient, sophisticated, and lethal. These were well-funded people. They had training. They had luck. But the idea that this was an inside job or even that that was allowed to happen. Um, I'm afraid I have no truck with that whatsoever. 
it's it's absolutely not supported by any of the facts. And you, on your website, you bring up a point. You have a you have a page that talks about conspiracy theories, and in part, you mention the darker side to some conspiracy theories, and you you say particularly those involving a new world order where phrases such as conspiracy of international bankers are often used to mask anti-Semitism, which is something that I've written about. I know a lot of people who, who have. Have you seen Ernst Zundel, the Holocaust denier, began his career by talking about UFOs, and he was using UFOs to, to pull naive people into his web of Holocaust denial. Do you still see that in the UFO field in particular, or in the U, sort of the paranormal or the conspiracy field in general, this, this sort of strain of anti-Semitism that runs through it? Perhaps you can talk a bit about that. I'm not familiar with that particular individual, but um, there's, there's certainly, and, and again, I'm not going to name names, but um, uh, there are some people in the UK ufology uh, kind of you know field. There are actually some UK ufology skeptics who are fairly aggressive and loudmouthed and and anti certain, shall we say, fairly prominent UFO researchers in in the US and in Canada. And uh, you know. Again, I, I'm choosing my words carefully, but uh, one of these people runs an anti-Israeli blog, and he's like, well, these Israelis are really, really bad people. And it's like, you know, sometimes you feel like saying, well, why don't you tell us what you really think? And and I think there is there is a real, real danger with some of this. There are some people who are trying to position themselves as liberal, pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli people who really one one does wonder, is there not a darker side here? And, and as I say, I've, I've met a lot of these people. And it's very, very scary. You hear people who are entirely reasonable, and then suddenly they come up with these phrases like um, conspiracy of international bankers, and you know what they're really saying, but they're a little bit too cowardly to actually come out and say it straight out. A little too smart, perhaps. It's, uh, it's a, bit well, a bit of both. Yeah, I, I've studied um, sort of anti-Semitism and conspiracy theorism for years, and there are catchphrases. There are, you know, you can be anti-Israel in terms of the policies pursued by the Israeli government. Of course, government. I, I know. I I have many Jewish friends, and I know an awful lot of them who who are not necessarily comfortable with what the, the current state of Israel is is doing in terms of the government, the policy, whatever. But you know what? There's a world of difference between that and some of the somewhere between naivety and racism that that purports for for anti-Israeli, anti-Zionist sentiment on on certain websites. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I know the people in the UK you're talking about. And the, less, the less the less I run I run into them, the less said, the better. Okay, Nick, here's the next short snapper. I was at a party about a month ago with a very pretty young model actress, and we started talking about UFOs. Did I say very pretty? She is very pretty. And she wanted to know, she was very, very concerned about 2012. 
and like, is the end of the world coming? And what about the Mayan prophecies and all this sort of stuff? And I notice on your website, you've written a, you've written a bit about uh, 2012. Perhaps you can give us your bog standard for the folks on the Paracast forum that might be interested. What do you think of all the 2012 stuff that is is really going on now? And as we move closer towards that day in 2012, I think it's going to be as big as as Y2K was 10 or 11 years ago. Well, so, what are your thoughts on 2012? Well, yes, indeed, it is going to be as big as Y2K and and Nostradamus 1999. But I think, in a sense, you've answered your own question. Absolutely the same is going to happen in 2012 as happened in 1999, when many, many people thought that the world was going to end, i.e. absolutely nothing. I'll tell you why I feel strongly about this, and I'll give you a, a little practical example. Sure. I... work now as a freelance journalist. I do a lot of writing, TV and radio work in the UK. Uh, The other day I was doing something for the BBC and I was doing a radio interview with one of the BBC's regional programs. And before we got started, the presenter said, "Uh, Nick, she said, can you send a message to a 14-year-old boy who actually is refusing to do his homework because he said the world's going to end in 2012 and there's no point in studying. And I was absolutely flabbergasted. And I thought, my goodness, you know, if if this is the sort of effect that this is having, then I do need to, to speak out on this. And uh, so, yes, on my website, I, I have an essay where I point out that, you know, again, wanting, not wanting to sound too flippant about it, but every year I buy a calendar. <laughs> and at the end of every year, my calendar runs out and I throw it away. But just because my calendar runs out it doesn't mean the world ends. It just means I buy another calendar. So when people talk about the, the Mayan calendar, or to get this technically correct, I think the Mesoamerican long count calendar. Sure. Just just because that finishes, it doesn't mean the world ends. There's no. We don't have a mindset, not least because so few codexes survive of, of these people. We don't have a mindset into what these people believed, what they thought, their religion, their belief systems. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm absolutely a believer that 2012 is going to be an interesting situation and if people use that to reassess their lives, um, their philosophy, then that's a great thing. But if people think that the world's going to end, um, if, if people want to hook up with cults, as as we saw all too tragically in in um, relation to Hale Bob mm. and Heaven's Gate, for example, uh, then that's a dreadful thing. So 2012 is interesting, and if if, if that gives you an interest in the, the Mayans, in ancient cultures, in spiritual renewal, great. But don't think the world's going to end. It's not. And you know what? Just in case the world does end in 2012, here's the last thing I'm going to say. Before 2012 rolls around, you should read Operation Thunderchild and Operation Lightning Strike. 
two books written by Nick Pope. And I think this might be a, a bit of your bio or your CV that maybe not a lot of people, or maybe not as many people as you as know about your UFO work, realize you've actually written two novels that had to be vetted, as your website says, the only two sci-fi books ever to be vetted by the British government prior to publication. Um, just, I'm curious, talk a bit about Operation Thunderchild and Operation Lightning Strike. What are the books about? And why did you want to get involved in writing science fiction? Well, sure. I'd, I'd, written, I'd written two non-fiction books, one on UFOs and one on alien abductions. And my agent said, <laughs> you know, you should be on a bit of a roll. What, what do you want to do next? And I actually said, well, look, I, I don't want to be popular. I don't want to, you know, necessarily play the top ten. I want to do what I want to do. And I, I've always had this idea that I wanted to write a sci-fi novel. So I wrote these two books about alien invasion. And, um, you know, because at the time I wrote them, I still worked for the Ministry of Defense, even though these were fiction books, sci-fi. I actually had to submit the text to the Ministry of Defense, and they had to actually clear them and say, right, we've got to satisfy ourselves that there's nothing in here uh, that you've incorporated on the basis of your government experience. Sure. Um, the Queen isn't a lizard or anything like that. That's not in the books, is it? It's certainly not. That's, sorry, that's some other British authors. So isn't that for Doctor Who or something? They always have weird things like that. Um, I know there was an episode of Doctor Who recently where he sees Winston Churchill, who has harnessed the power of the Daleks to attack yeah, the evil space I, I'm people. A great, I'm a great fan of Doctor Who. Even I have to admit that that episode was a little bit disappointing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, uh, staying on the science fiction thing for just a second, here's a quick question for you, Nick. If you had the opportunity to write for any sci-fi television show, past or present, I won't say future because we don't know what they are, but if you could pick one that's going on today or is aired at any time on television in the past, which one would you like to write for or be involved in as a consultant? Which is kind of like asking you what your favorite science fiction show is. But I've always believed that you can learn a lot about people by asking them what their favorite science fiction television series is. So which one would you pick and why? I would pick Doctor Who or maybe the spin-off, the, the kind of X-rated spin-off Torchwood. Right. And I've, I've actually done some PR for them, but actually, in terms of something that again I've I've done some PR work for, if if there's a third movie, I think it would be the X Files movie. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a fast question. Two questions. Number one, is there going to be a possibility of a third X Files movie because the previous one kind of failed? And will there ever be another season of Torchwood? Or as the lead actor now, he's working on Desperate Housewives as some kind of murderous person. Maybe he doesn't need the job anymore. Yes, I think there'll be... Um, I, I think there will be a third Exiles movie. And um, Torchwood, yeah, that that will run and run because it's it's like Doctor Who, but it's darker. And there is an appetite for that, definitely. So, who, who, well, who's your favorite doctor of all time, then? There's my last question. Any oh, doctor. 
Well, gosh, this is the question. They they ask the same thing about James Bond, don't they? And they, they always say the first one you saw. I, I think Tom Baker. Really? Yeah, yeah it's a good choice. Yes. I, like Peter Dav- I like Peter Davison. I, I really? Yeah, that's, go figure. Yeah, that's, that's not a... A common answer, but I see what yeah. you mean. He he was good. Yeah, you don't hear that often. He's kind of like he is the uh, Timothy Dalton. Is, <laughs> yeah, is Timothy Dalton on Peter Davison is to Doctor Who. He's the forgotten one who was really good, but nobody ever really liked him very much. Well, of course, see, a lot of the current fans and new fans of the show don't remember Tom Baker, but he had that wackiness with the crazy curly hair and everything that I think embodied Doctor Who. What about the one before the current one? The current one hasn't been doing it long enough to really make a judgment. David Tennant. David Tennant, absolutely brilliant. I mean, one of the best actors that you could conceive of, and and just the 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 kind of line that he trod between genius and madness and and brilliance and sadness. I mean, brilliant acting, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. His last episode when you know he changed and became the new Doctor, you, you certainly saw a very very darker Doctor Who and moments where you could see um, it's almost like that Darth Vader Anakin Skywalker thing where you could almost see Doctor Who drifting perhaps to the dark side a little bit and Tennant's such a good actor he really brought that out and that's the great thing this is a you know this is is supposedly a sci-fi show that goes out before the watershed but there is a dark side to this and Torchwood has explored this but Doctor Who does do it too insofar as they can before the watershed when kids are watching but it's it's great yep okay so is matt smith a decent successor to all those who came before yes he is he had big big shoes to step into but this guy i mean this is the sign of greatness to follow christopher eccleston and David Tennant as two brilliant actors, very well established. Well, the thing is, just watching these people utter these complicated speeches minute after minute and do it so well, you realize you have to have a pretty good actor who can get away with that and sound believable. Well, this is where Matt Smith has done brilliantly because he stepped into very big shoes with those two massive actors in in terms of their reputation in in the UK and and now beyond Christopher Eccleston and and David Tennant and Matt Smith has made this role his own nobody thought he could do it he's done it well done him here's my dream Doctor Who after he's done Ewan McGregor takes over and you get to see Obi-Wan Kenobi play Doctor Who and then my head might literally literally explode if that ever happens that would be my dream well after watching Ewan McGregor play this crazy priest in Angels and Demons the Tom Hanks vehicle based on the Dan Brown books and then watching him in The Men Who Stare at Goats Mm. much more so than Obi-Wan Kenobi I think the guy's got the acting chops to do just about anything yeah, well, watch him in Moulin Rouge, and when he starts singing silly love songs by Paul McCartney, that's when I, don't take this the wrong way, Paracast audience, but that's when I fell in love with Ewan McGregor, so, <laughs> which is why I have a restraining order out against me by Ewan McGregor. Okay. So. I kind of like the performances from Hugh Laurie as Dr. Gregory House on American television. There's something about these British character actors who do American accents so flawlessly. 
you could always, you know, I can get down my... Sorry, Nick, go ahead. So, no, I was going to say, is this where you're looking for me to do a, a sort of little ride? That's right. <laughs> British accent thing here. Uh, Nick Pope, where can we find more of the things that you write about? NickPope.net. That was fast and breezy. Pa Paul Kimball, where can we find your stuff? You know what? I'm all over the place, but the place to come look for me, folks, is on the Paracast forums because... I don't just talk on the radio. I actually show up in the forums and give you folks a chance to beat me over the head with a shovel. So bring it on. And by the way, Nick, if you want to be beaten over the head with a shovel, you're welcome to join, too. I'll look into that. But <laughs> I get beaten on the head with shovels and other blunt implements all the time. So I'm, I'm not sure about that. There's well, they've been doing I, that to me for 105 years or something like there, that. There's only two things I would say. If you do that, Nick, it would be interesting if true, and it would be a part, <laughs> of, it would be a part of your journey. That's all I'm going to say. Oh. Inside, inside joke between Nick and Paul. Inside joke, very much so. Thanks to my co-hosts, Paul Kimball, Nick Pope. Thanks for joining us on the PowerCast. Thank you. Thank you. standard of power on mobile radio is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the PowerCast.